I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series, Practicing the Way, Scripture. The Bible is often used as an encyclopedia of moral truth, or it's lambasted when it seems to fail to adhere to modern science or history. But the Bible doesn't understand itself as a rule book or a science manual. The Bible is a story. This is a photo taken during a service at the Church of God with signs following in 1946. During services, pastors and congregants claimed to be empowered by the Spirit of God to wield poisonous reptiles. The small movement of such churches was built entirely from this strange passage included in some translations, anyway, of Mark 16. Now, this passage is widely accepted by scholars to be an addition to the original text, meaning the original text doesn't have it in there. But that didn't stop it from single-handedly spawning a small Appalachian movement of snake-handling churches and more than a dozen reported deaths from rattlesnake bites since the 40s. How does that happen? Imagine, if you will, a world in which the human civilization we know is a thing of the distant past. So imagine sophisticated super beings of some far-flung future begin to excavate ancient ruins of Washington, D.C., of Manhattan. And in this world of science fiction, two of these interdimensional travelers, students studying a world that once was, they pull from the fossilized remains of a fallen city fragments of some prehistoric image, and it looks like this. Now, they actually recognize these figures. They're humans to begin with, and they recall their teachers mentioning that the archaeological record seems to indicate that these particular humans were rulers of some kind. But what comes next is the discovery of a lifetime, a second parchment, this one almost perfectly intact, and it looks like this. Now, these young super beings feel as if incredible new light has been uh, cast on the world of the past. Clearly, these particular humans possess the ability to grow their forms to massive sizes where they would rule perched on the planet itself. Their ears got particularly huge during the process, apparently. Now, these super beings can't read English, but they have a translation device, and it suggests that the word on the left of the image has to do with thought, And the word on the right has to do with machines, kind of. Thus, this historical document clearly teaches that one of these gigantic gods was the mind of the earth and that he was empowered by the Egyptian god Isis. You can see it written on his little paper right there. The second god obviously maintained the mechanical functionality of the world using enormous god tools and special boots. And as these two students revel in the thrill of discovery, one of their teachers approaches to see what all the fuss is about. And eyeing the document in question, the teacher scoffs at them. You dorks, the teacher says, because that's how they talk in this far-flung future. You dorks. That image doesn't communicate any of those things. That's not what this image was for. And the students look at each other very confused and say, then what was it for? Not understanding what the image is, or what it is for, not only directs these hypothetical observers to conclusions that simply aren't true, it also blinds them to the image's intended purpose. Now, when we do this with the Bible, 
of all things. You build churches on rattlesnake dances based on a passage that probably isn't even in Mark's gospel in the first place. But there are plenty of weird passages in the Bible whose authenticity are not disputed. In fact, most of the Bible is not disputed. What's its authenticity is not disputed whatsoever. And in the wisdom literature, the Hebrew scriptures, for example, sits a, a line of prose with curious purpose. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Now, even that, though that line is kind of vague and not that detailed, uh, this, this single line has been cited by parents who beat and torture their children often to death. In James 5, we read, Is anyone among you sick? What should you do about it? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. doesn't say anything about doctors or medicine. So these words have been used to deny the sick proper health care. Several passages in the New Testament addressing the dynamic between indentured servants and their masters in the first century were once brandished as the Bible's explicit condoning of the American slave trade. Is that what the Bible is for? Is the Bible a prescriptive moral manual that forbids modern medicine and demands that children be beaten with rods? Is the Bible a timeless artifact without context or locale that inevitably creates rattlesnake worship and slavery? Is that what the Bible is for? How does this book cause so much trouble? Now to figure that out, let's read from this dangerous, controversial library together. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, we are in a series and a set of practices in your communities all about the way that we approach, understand, and read this thing that we call the Bible. Now last week we offered some recommended reading. You can go back and listen to the podcast or I guess watch the video all over again. Um, and it's uh, intended to supplement the series. But I want to specifically suggest, once again, working your way through the Bible Project's 2017 podcast series, How to Read the Bible, in tandem with this series and in tandem with this series practices. There's a link in the video description. Okay, that said, let's get into the text. Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. We read, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So Jesus, like his followers today, honored a, a rhythm of weekly synagogue in which, just as we do today, people would come together to study the scriptures and to learn the things of God. It was part of Jesus' ordinary life rhythm. So he stood up to read, and verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So again, not unlike today, it was a customary thing during synagogue that there would be a reading from the scriptures followed by a short teaching, what we would think of as a sermon. Unrolling it, Jesus found the place where it is written. He's familiar with the text, he knows where to go, and he reads in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. It was customary for a rabbi to teach from a seated position. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today... 
this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Now, in verse 21 of what we just read, Jesus claims that this passage from Isaiah had been fulfilled. And it's the same Greek word we read in Matthew 5 when Jesus claimed that he had not come to abolish the scriptures but to fulfill them. That word peplerotai in Greek, fulfilled, is used by the authors of the New Testament to describe what happens when a story or a prophecy from the Hebrew scriptures, what we think of as the Old Testament, was finally coming to pass in and through Jesus of Nazareth. So think about what Jesus is doing here. He reads from an ancient poem as if it belongs to a story. An earlier chapter in that story, Jesus says, is now finally arriving at its resolution. Now that is not the way that I was taught to read the Bible, the prophets, when I was growing up in church. So to explain what I mean, take for example another writing from the prophets. I know the plans I have for you. I'm sure a lot of you have heard this before. Declares Yahweh, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It's really beautiful. Now, in my early church experience, this line was quoted all the time. People put it up on their walls. It was decoration. It was the whole thing. I never thought of this text, this phrase, as anchored in a greater story. It was for, for whoever needed to hear it at the time whenever they needed to hear it, in whatever context they needed to hear it. The you in Jeremiah 11 was me. For years, nothing else occurred to me. Because the Bible, as I understood it, was essentially an encyclopedia of timeless truths. Even when the Bible was explicitly narrative, when it was a story, and that was obvious, we understood those stories to be allegories for us in the here and now. So, for example, David kills some huge guy with a slingshot. You know the story. That's about me. It's about how I can overcome impossible odds, about how I can slay giants with the power of God. Now, if the uh, sarcastic way that I'm describing these things isn't a giveaway, I'll forfeit the ruse at this point and admit that I no longer believe these things about the Bible. The year that Van City began, we were in a series called The Year of Biblical Literacy. During that time, raise your hand if you were there for that, where you're sitting in your home. You guys can't see it, but Patrick and Cam are here in the studio. They both raised their hands. During that time, we used this definition. It's, it's worked out by our friends at the Bible Project in Portland. We used this definition to explain what the Bible is. The Bible is a library of writings, both human and divine, that together tells a unified story which leads us to Jesus. Now this is, I think, the best definition of the book many of you are holding in your hands at the moment. Dave Zarati. Are you holding your Bible at the moment? If not, please go get it. We will wait for you. Now, while he's gone, let's keep going. <laughs> now, uh, I realize that that definition, it's a bit wordy. It's pretty loaded with, with words, and those words are loaded with meaning. So give me about 10 minutes to work this definition out one word at a time, because this is actually absolutely crucial in understanding the Bible. So let's start from the beginning. The Bible is a library. Now, here's a funny bit of irony for you. Bible is actually probably not the best name for this thing. It comes from the Latin biblia, which just means book. 
But it's not actually a book the way that we often think of books. In fact, it it wasn't even compiled into the Protestant English version that you're holding in your hands until about a millennia after Jesus. Before that, it was 24 scrolls. It was a library of writings. Now, maybe that sounds like quibbling over semantics, but it actually has a pretty significant bearing on how you read and understand the Bible. Think about it. You come to a library with a very different set of expectations than the ones that you bring to a single book. A book, for example, typically encompasses a single genre or form. It's it's a novel, or it's a memoir, or it's poetry, or it's reference. There's overlap and blending, of course, but in most cases, there's a primary genre and there's a primary form. Singular books often have a singular creative force. Uh, an author, maybe two authors, maybe an author and an illustrator, but a singular creative force. Even reference books with lots of authors are typically compiled by the singular vision of an editor. A library, on the other hand, represents many authors, many creative visions. A single book is typically written over a singular period of time, all in one era, but a library can span many lifetimes, many cultures, many eras, And so on a a kind of subconscious level, your brain readies a strategy for reading a certain type of thing. When I read academic works on theology, for example, I'm usually in my office with a pen and a frame of mind for study and learning. When I read novels, I'm usually on my couch with coffee, ready ready to be stirred and inspired and entertained. If I read a cookbook, I'm usually struggling over a stove trying to do math in ounces and tablespoons, which I can't ever do for some reason. And I know that I'm messing it up and that Abby's going to laugh at me when it's all said and done. And if I'm reading, you know, an Instagram caption or something, hopefully I'm standing over a bucket or something so that I can puke as soon as I finish. I like reading. Um, So I usually read more than one book at a time. I always have a novel going, but I also read theology for work, um, spiritual formation stuff in the morning in my time of prayer. And I'm learning and absorbing and thinking about what I'm reading from each book with a different frame of mind. I'm, I'm not reading them as if they all belong to and came from one single uniform volume. I know that they come from a library. My point is that if you read the Bible as a book rather than a library, you can get into all kinds of trouble because the Bible has dozens of authors in multiple languages across many locations and cultures who are interested in all sorts of different genres, some of which we don't even have around today. There's history, there's biography, there's something called apocalyptic, there's worship and there's sex poems and there's sad song lyrics and there are genealogies and philosophy and census data, there's parables, there are letters to individuals, there's letters to groups of people. So, We like to say that the best way to read the Bible is not literally, but literarily. You see what we did there? You like that, Levi? You think that's a good word? You read the Bible according to each genre and according to what the author of each genre actually intended to say to their audience. So here's what I mean. You sit down to read the Bible. You open up to the very beginning, page one, Genesis chapter one. It's the creation narrative. In the beginning, God created... Don't ask, is the Bible story of creation scientifically accurate? Instead, ask yourself, what genre of literature am I reading? And then, what does the author mean to say with it? Does the author of Genesis 1 intend to offer a historical or scientific account of creation? 
And if the answer turns out to be yes, you would still need to ask, well, okay, then how did the people of the author's time and place understand science and the recording of history? If the answer is no, that's not what the author is doing, then what is the author doing? What is the genre? What is this? Is it a story? Is it poetry? Is it a metaphor? Is it something else altogether? The Bible must be read across its many genres like a library. So the Bible is a library of writings. And the writings of this library are both human and divine. Now, here's a brain bender for you. In Matthew 22, Jesus quotes verbatim from a psalm written by David. And notice, to preface this psalm, Jesus describes it as David speaking by the Spirit, which is fascinating. In one small phrase, Jesus encapsulates a dense theology of how the Bible works. It's David talking. There's a very human author but the human author is speaking by the Spirit. So Jesus is appealing to the voice of God through the voice of David, through the voice of Scripture. And Jesus is characteristically profound here. For him, the Scriptures are more than just the product of human imagination. If that were, if that were what Jesus believed, he just would have said, David said. But neither does Jesus understand the scriptures as some kind of divine dictation void of any human component. It's David doing the speaking, but he's doing it by the Spirit. Jesus understands the sacred Hebrew scriptures as a collaboration between one divine author and other human authors. But many of the Bible's readers desperately want it to be only one of those two things. So fundamentalists, for example badly want the Bible to read as a golden tablet that fell from heaven, and this creates massive problems when they encounter the very human elements of the Bible. The personalities, the agendas of the authors, their time, their place, their culture, their context, all of those things are intact and on the page. And the Bible's progressive readers, on the other hand, badly want it to be a human writing, which makes it sound like nonsense when the book itself understands itself to have a divine author. So you have Paul writing, all scripture is God-breathed. Or when Peter writes, prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's a, an analogy for you. One scholar I read compared the interplay to a musician playing an instrument. Is the music coming from the instrument the product of the instrument or the person playing it. Alla, what do you think? Did you say both? <laughs> it's both. If she didn't say both, you know, you can laugh about it after this is over. But wait a second, because we're not done. It's both. It takes the minds, the hands, the skill of the musician, and then they choose to anchor the performance within the instrument's potential, meaning you can only do what the instrument can do. The instrument can't do certain things that other instruments can do. They have specific abilities and they have specific limitations. So it is with God and his human authors of the Bible. The Bible is a library of writings, both human and divine, that together tell a unified story. Now again, there's all sorts of genres in the Bible and they tend to overlap quite a bit. But here are the primary three. You have narrative, stories. That's about 44% of the Bible, almost half. 
Next is poetry, which makes up about 33% of the Bible. And then finally, you have teaching or discourse, which is 23% of the Bible. Now, obviously, again, there's overlap. Sometimes things do both. But in the strict sense, anyway, that's kind of how it breaks out. Isn't that something? Despite the pervasive tendency to treat the Bible as an encyclopedia of truth or kind of like a moral rule book where you just flip around and find out what to do with your day, Teaching, or discourse, actually makes up the minority of the Bible's three primary genres. There's more poetry in the Bible than there is explicit discourse. And most of the Bible is narrative, a story. But even the poetry, as Jesus demonstrated, and even the teaching, it all falls into one epic story. It begins with, in the beginning, and it concludes with, I am coming soon. Spoiler alert, if you haven't finished the book yet, that's how it ends. There's a few more words after that, but don't read them until you get to the very end. So please listen to me on this. If you miss this, that the Bible is one unified story, you will be lost in your journey to understand the Bible. Tim Keller once argued, the reason for our confusion over the Bible, the reason is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. (laughs) Rather, it comprises a single story, telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. Case in point, think of the way the Bible is often read to children. We read stories about Noah's Ark, for example which is a horrific story if you've read the thing. It's bleak, it's violent, it's bizarre, um, and, and there might be some kind of weird sexual incest thing at the end, depending on who you're reading. Or, or take David and Goliath. Here's another great one. After David kills this guy, usually the story ends there for kids, but David saws off his big head with a sword, and then he carries it all the way to Jerusalem, the thing rotting in the sun the whole way. In order to make these stories work For kids, you have to do surgery on them or else force them to say something that they don't actually say. So you twist and fold them into digestible shapes and they become moral anecdotes about life in the modern world. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't read the Bible to kids. I read my kids' Bible stories before bed most nights from a kid's Bible, the whole thing. But imagine if I was trying to read them William Golding's Lord of the Flies. I'd have to neuter the thing. And by the time I made it palatable for kids, the entire purpose of the novel would be drained from its pages. It might make sense to them, but it wouldn't be Lord of the Flies. The Bible is not Aesop's fables. The Bible's not the tortoise and the hare. It's it's not the fox and the sour grapes. It is not built out of anecdotes meant for inspiration and for moral lessons. The Bible is full of profound, sophisticated artistry that speaks to the truth of the human condition, reality itself, and most of all, God. And honestly, this is not a uniquely Christian perspective on the Bible. A slew of scholars and historians throughout history who are not Christians marvel over the literary accomplishment of the Bible and puzzle over the mysteries of the Bible, devoting careers and lifetimes to studying it. Because any sophisticated work of art can often be hard to understand. 
Now, I believe personally that a healthy diet of art is extremely important in learning to understand and appreciate the Bible because if you scoff at the, vo- the value and the purpose of something like an abstract painting, for example, or you know an experimental novel or what have you, then you are in big trouble when it comes to the Bible. I think disciples of Jesus should read literary fiction, for example, whether they consider themselves to be the reading type or not. I think that they should read it as much as they read theology, personally. Most of the Bible is narrative, and it can be mystifying and layered and offensive and complex. How will you learn to appreciate the genre the Bible most prefers if you do not steep yourself in that genre? On that note, I've added a short list of recommended literary fiction to this teaching page at vancity.church slash online if you would like to get started in that journey or just want to read some books. Reading stories, I think, is important because the Bible is a library of writings, both human and divine, that together tell a unified story. And that story leads us to Jesus. Now, last week I read Jesus' critique of the Pharisees from John 5. He told them, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. All of the Bible's beauty and strangeness is leading to Jesus. The Bible understands Jesus of Nazareth as the story's fulcrum point. And not just the story of the Bible, but the story of life and the universe. The Bible argues that contentment and career are not the center of reality. Neither are comfort and security. The center of reality is not family or politics or sex or pleasure or chasing your dreams, the pursuit of happiness. The center of reality is Jesus. And the Bible is a story that invites the reader into what is true of reality. Thus, the Bible is a library of writings, both human and divine, that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. Now, since we got that uh, on the table, what the Bible is, before we end, let's talk for just a minute about what the Bible is for. Everyone believes certain stories about life and the world. It's how we make sense of things. It's how we navigate reality. Whether you ponder them consciously or subconsciously, all of us wonder at the point of all this. Who are we? Why are we here? What's the point? And to exist at all, we are propelled by stories about what is and is not true. Psychologists call them mental maps. Sociologists call it a worldview. But historically, the story that you believe was called your religion. Religion sounds like a a pejorative nowadays, inside and outside the church. Everyone's like, I'm not religious, I follow Jesus. We are absolutely religious. I, I find the term pretty helpful, actually. Tim Keller defines religion as a set of beliefs that explains what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things human beings should spend their time doing. Now, if that's your working definition, obviously all humans are religious. And I think that that's true. I think that they are. Whether they're Muslims or atheists or Buddhists or naturalists, nationalism, militarism, socialism, political activism, progressivism, deconstructionism, all, all the isms, they are kinds of religions. It's the story you believe about who we are and about what matters in life and the world. So it's not a matter of asking whether or not one believes a story or whether or not a person is religious. We all believe a story and we're all religious. The question is, which story do you believe? 
And that's a complicated question for a handful of reasons. The first being that every story comes from an external source. No one manufactures their own story. We get it from someone or something else. Two, not all stories are true. And I, though I have no problem whatsoever with the idea of exclusive truth statements, this is actually less to do with the idea of objective truth and it's more to do with logic. All of these stories argue for very different ways of understanding the world and navigating life. They can't all be true. So some are, quite frankly, lies. Some are uh, made up of truths and half-truths and lies. And some make good points based on bad premises or, or vice versa. Some stories exist just to exploit you, to garner votes or money or allegiance or something even more sinister. And finally... The other reason that this is all really complicated is whatever story you do believe will determine the kind of person you become, for better or for worse. So I knew a guy a long time ago. Uh, we were friends. We traveled together playing music in different bands. Um, and then for years, we'd uh, occasionally run into each other from time to time on the road, catch up for a bit. Hey, it's nice to see you. Quick hug and talk for a while and go our separate ways. I knew him as someone who followed Jesus. And then years later... I heard that he had fallen into some pretty serious trouble, made some really bad decisions by his own admission and everyone else's life. His life was kind of in shambles. And I, I read an interview where he was saying that it began with a bad reading of the Bible. He understood the Bible as a moral encyclopedia. Eventually his worldview kind of broke down. He'd given up on Jesus, become an atheist. And this transition from one extreme way of thinking to another left him asking certain questions, and then those questions became certain decisions. He talked about the way that he remembered being on the road and presented with the opportunity to cheat on his wife. And whereas before, he would have confronted that decision with a kind of moral absolutism, the, the one he was brought up with, he suddenly realized that he no longer had those morals or that absolutism. So he said, what is marriage anyway? And what is monogamy? What is morality anyway? They're all cultural constructs. They're inventions. I don't believe in those things. So he had the first affair and the next and the next, and eventually things got much, much worse. Now, I am in no way saying that if you don't follow Jesus, you will inevitably become immoral or have affairs or anything like that. What I am saying is that you will live as a logical extension of what you actually believe is true. The story that you trust, whether you got it from an upbringing or a teacher or a book or a podcast or from culture around you, the story that you trust will inform the way you live. It will inform the way that you talk and behave, the way you handle money, the way you understand gender and sexuality, the way that you treat other people. The story you trust will inform the way you live. So, enter the Bible. There's a famous story about Austrian philosopher Ivan Illich who was once asked the best way to change a society. He was kind of talking about political revolution. He replied, neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a new powerful tale, one so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story. One so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past and our present into a coherent whole. One that even shines some light into our future so that we can take the next step. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. How has the Bible retained such power of controversy over the hearts and minds of people for centuries over the known world? 
What is the incendiary secret of this library of writings? It tells an alternative story. How does the Bible disrupt society and change lives? How has it turned the world upside down? Why is it so loved and so hated? Why is it so shaping and so misunderstood? Because it tells an alternative story. Our goal as disciples of Jesus is to allow that same combustible power that has toppled empires to do the same demolition work in our hearts and minds and to rebuild in keeping with a better story. How do we do all that? By reading it. A couple of years ago, our very own uh, Eric Peterson and I were talking about movies on a Sunday afternoon. Remember Sunday afternoons? We were talking about Sunday afternoons, and I told him how much I had been impacted by a movie that had been uh, recently released, Darren Aronofsky's film Mother. And I remember him saying, I should have known that you would like it. If it's divisive and provocative, then you're probably into it. And he wasn't wrong. Uh, this is honestly how I learned to love the Bible. My point is, I learned to understand that the Bible was meant to bother me sometimes and love the Bible even when it did bother me. Because reading the Bible asks a lot of the reader, like any good work of art. It intends to provoke you. And Jesus invites his disciples into that experience of being disrupted and disturbed, but also encouraged and inspired and uplifted to have rest for their very souls in the text and in the teachings of Jesus. With the Bible, you get answers, but you also get questions. And you get questions intended to lead to answers, and answers intended to lead to questions, and you get questions that just frankly hang in the air unresolved, and that's the point. And in that complicated experience, you are allowing a new story to reshape your worldview, your mental map, your religion, if you will. You are learning to believe an alternative story. Now, there are all kinds of ways to read the Bible. Our plan for the next few weeks with this series and these practices is to teach you four of the primary methods. There's reading and listening to large portions or entire books in one sitting. There's reading as meditation literature. There's study of the scriptures. And there's reading for memorization. Now, this week, to begin, your community will talk about beginning the practice of extended readings in one sitting. Our community did this a few weeks ago, actually, when we could still see one another in person. Remember seeing one another in person? We read 2 Timothy out loud, all together, just sitting in a living room from start to finish. Now, reading the Bible in chunks isn't a wrong way to read it by any means, but it shouldn't be the only way that we read it. It's a bit like watching a movie in chunks rather than in one single sitting, which I would argue is actually outright sinful. Mike, part of reclaiming our grasp of the Bible as a story is learning to see it as bigger pieces of a whole. The practice is up at vanity.church slash scripture. Now to end, I want to remind you of something that we brought up last week. Before we even get to the technique of reading the Bible, our experience of the Bible will be shaped by the posture of our hearts as we approach it in the first place. If you've resolved in your heart that the Bible must or must not be a certain thing, then you'll probably find ways to make it obey your expectations. If you anticipate something from the Bible that the Bible does not intend to provide, 
your experience of the Bible might be like drinking from a glass of water when you expected orange juice. It's jarring and off-putting and then a little disappointing. But we are to be disciples of Jesus, students of Jesus. He is the teacher. He is the master. He is our Lord. And so ours is to be an approach of surrender. We do not dictate where the Bible can and cannot navigate our thinking and our feeling. We approach the scriptures in a posture of loving surrender, wanting to know, to believe, and to be formed by Jesus, wanting a different story. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us or find more teachings and available resources from Van City at www.vancity.church. You can also support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.